Hello and welcome to episode 199 of What Most People Think. I hope you are. I hope you're having a good week. I certainly am having a much better week. Um, the last podcast that went up, episode 198. Shortly after recording that, I was struck down with food poisoning. You're always struck down with food poisoning, aren't you? Struck down <laughs> with food. And man, literally, I must have finished the podcast and about an hour later. A couple of people have already suggested having listened back to the podcast. I wasn't quite right then. Could be that. Could have just been that I wasn't being very funny. And um, yeah, I was, I was in a cab on the way over to do my work in progress gig in Stockport. And I had to say to the minicab driver... Can you pull over, please, mate? <laughs> this is on a fucking motorway. He looked at me like I was mental, and then he saw my face, and he was, oh, my God. What a scene. I'm just so glad. I won't, like, you know, I won't burden you with the details, but I was I was not in good shape by the side of the road. And as I was, um, well, as I, my system was purging itself, I was uh, suddenly struck the idea, what if somebody recognised me and took a photo of this? <laughs> It's been the most shameful thing. So I guess it goes to say, you know, you should always, if you've got your health, you should be happy because one minute you're crushing life, you're having a nice gig, and then the next minute, the next day, there you are by the side of the side of the road, bent over like a fucking sick dog, like a sick dog. Um, but thank you to the cabbie who was so nice. I mean, it did occur to me afterwards that after I'd asked him to pull over, and there I was being unwell by the side of the road. He could have just driven off. He's like, oh, I don't want this sick bastard in my cab. He could have just driven off. And then I would have been trying to hail a truck driver and God knows what, uh, what would have happened then. Um, this is what most people think. Um, this is a show, if you're joining us for our guest this week, who is the, well, you know, a legend of all sorts of things, really, principally rugby, but also now DJ, uh, author, uh, James Haskell is on the show. We're, we're punching above our weight. And you know why? Remember I said to you about keeping those reviews up? It all helps keep it, you know, the number's good. And then when people, when you ask people to be on the podcast, and James said yes because he's a nice guy, guy anyway, and we met in other circumstances. But it all it all helps it, you know, it all helps me basically, but good guests. And I've got a very special guest as well for next week for the 200th episode. But if, if this is the, the, the first time listening to this podcast, it's it's what most people think. It's a comedy, uh, topical discussion, chat type fucking thing, you know. One of those things, but it's coming, you know, from a slightly different place uh, politically than a lot of the rest of comedy. Not radically so, but just a little bit. Having said that, though, I'm acting like I'm, you know, the voice of the people. I was at the BAFTAs uh, on Sunday night, and um, yeah, you got. It. I mean, look, I, I won't lie. I I love hobnobbing with um, the the cultural liberal elite, but it should be said that me and a writer called Phil, we did duck out of there for a while. Um, to get a pint on tap. <laughs> so you, can, you can never get away from truly from your roots, can you? So we was there. And the thing about these dudes is they always, you know, they generally on the tables they'll have like wine and champagne. But I think it's very class insensitive that they generally don't have beer uh, and they never have beer on tap. Um, so we went around the corner to an all-bar one. Just two guys sitting in an all-bar one in, in our dinner jackets, just drinking pints, because we needed a couple of pints. But um, <laughs> So usually I'm here to articulate um, the common ex- the experience of the common man, but may- maybe I can't, I'm, I'm, I've got less and less uh, mandate to say that. But um, getting back to our guest this week, James Haskell, I've had the chat with him. This is it's, it's just, look, strap yourselves in. We spoke about a lot of things, you know, obviously from, from rugby to, 
to penises. There was a lot of chat about penises to DJing. It really, I mean, a very smart guy, very funny guy. I mean, you made me laugh as much as any comic coming on the show. So, so I uh, hope you enjoy that. And that's coming up. Uh, just to say hello to a few new patrons. The patrons are what keep this show uh, weekly and ad free. A board member level is Dave Lakeland. Dave, I think he's, uh, you know, patrons sometimes kick people out. So Dave is uh, is back on the board. He's back on the board. Or given it's a board, maybe Dave had to, to step back for a while, pending a few investigations. <laughs> just tying this in with what's happening in the news and a couple of uh, high-profile businessmen. But Dave has been cleared of all charges and uh, <laughs> he's, he's back on the board. And we all believed in you, Dave. We all believed in you, Dave. We just had to allow due process to happen. Uh, we've also got Ed Hanley. Uh, Ed Hanley, I think it's a familiar name. Are you a new patron? Ed Hanley. Edward Hanley. I mean, the one thing you would say about that surname now is it sounds dangerously like Hansy. Ed Hansy. Hansy Hanley. Is Hansy Hanley coming? <laughs> That'd be the worst one, wouldn't it? If uh, if you got went on a stag do and they'd done t-shirts with nicknames and yours was Hansy. And your wife's like, why do they call you Ed Hansy? You're like, it's just because just it rhymes with Hanley. And then she'd go, yeah, okay. But that, that thought would stay with her. Uh, yes, welcome to being a patron. Remember, if you become a patron, you get all sorts of benefits, not least that you can watch my last free stand-up specials uh, in uh, extended full-length cuts that you can't see uh, anywhere else. I've also got somebody called Kevin Greenhay. Kevin Greenhay. I mean, that sounds like a double-barreled name, but not, if you know what I mean, because there's no hyphen between the two things. Kevin Greenhay. I mean, imagine if Kev Greenhay met with someone with a complicated surname and then became double-barreled. Imagine if he met imagine if he married somebody called Purplestone. Kevin Greenhay and Laura Purplestone. Name <laughs> Laura Greenhay Purplestone. Uh, this is the problem. The more that you put names together, the more they end up sounding uh, like solicitors. Uh, Simon Compton. Simon Compton. I mean, I hope God Simon, you should do you should do you should become a comedian just so you could have the show title straight out of Compton. I mean, just literally for that. Simon Compton. I mean, it's funny, isn't it, that Compton both sounds like, I mean, obviously we associate it with being uh, the hood in America, but it also does sound like a posh item of clothing, you know, is the Compton. I mean, that that is, there is a weird interface, isn't there, between American rappers and some real gentlemanly stuff. Like you get American rappers that wear like top hats and drink. I mean, the love of Hennessy as well. That's It's very, um, so you, you sort of get the impression, don't you, that Jacob Rees-Mogg, and Method Man would probably get on. Um, and Kevin Thorne, I should plug this, because at the Sudbury Work in Progress show, Kevin and his uh, his lovely partner have got, uh, they, well, basically, they keep bees, and they've got, I mean, that's a real segue out of nowhere, but they gave me this lovely gift pack, and I know I don't advertise on the podcast, but there's things I'm willing to do for uh, VIP patrons and above, and you, can I direct you to their website, busybeecosmetics.co.uk, and stourvalleyapiaries.com. And uh, they got all this stuff, like soap that's got honey in it and stuff, and they've got actual honey. It's all this stuff. I bought it home. My wife fucking loved it. So uh, do go and check that out from them. Uh, domain talking point. Um, so this is going back to the names thing. A study in 2020, by opinion, uh, stated that 11% of UK citizens between the age of 18 and 34 combined 
their last names to create a double-barreled surname upon getting married. So, of course, this is, as you'd expect, a younger thing. So about 10% of them. I guess then so it would take quite a few generations before we reach tipping point there. But it's just one of those things you've got to do now. I mean, it is. It, I guess if you're, like a, if you're like a Gen Z guy getting married, you can't push back on it, can you? When you just the whole way you met your missus was going, yeah, I'm a feminist. Go, yeah, Catelyn Moran, yeah, oh, smash the glass ceiling. And then she says, I want, I don't want to take your name. You're like, you fucking what? You fucking what? How dare you? You make me look like a fool down the local. I look like a fool, Janine. Uh, regarding the council elections, another thing that, that David uh, has pointed out. So we were talking in the last the last episode about whether or not who'd had the worst night, who'd had the best night out of Tories and Labour. Uh, David says that while Tories definitely had a bad night, bad night, it was intriguing to note Labour's results. By Friday evening, Labour had won less than half the seats the Tories had lost. Uh, Labour won 450 seats and 19 councils, yet the Tories lost 970 seats and 40. 978 seats and 47 councils. Well, look, like I say, the talk of a coalition between uh, Labour and the Liberals is stepping up. So there's definitely people who have been crunching numbers and Ed Davey could become kingmaker. <laughs> that just sounds like the most unlikely thing ever. Ed Davey, kingmaker. I mean, imagine shaping up to be a poor man's Nick Clegg. Okay, a quick thank you and a fuck you before we get into the chat with James Haskell. Uh, thank you. Well, it's a positive development, I think. The Stand Comedy Club, we spoke on the Ian Dale episode about the fact that they'd pulled uh, an event that had Joanna Cherry speaking. Uh, they'd originally said they wanted the event to go on and then uh, some of their staff, enough of their staff said that they weren't willing to staff the event. So the Stand said but they weren't going to compel people to work. And then, you know, one of the problems when you go up with somebody called Joanna Cherry, is, is that a Q and a C at the end of her name? Um, you can't really do that if somebody holds a view which is not by any means legally, uh, you know, beyond the pale. Um, and so now they've now said that they are going to put <laughs> in, in a surprise development and that probably involves lawyers. Uh, they are going to put the event on. And, and this is what's interesting, I think, is people often talk about cancel culture, right? And they say, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not cancel culture, it's consequences culture. I think that we're going to move to a point where there's consequence, consequence culture. So you go, okay, that's your consequence, but there's also a legal consequence. You can't do things that are outside of the law. Um, the fuck you. The fuck you goes to Alistair Campbell. And the latest instalment of Alistair Campbell appears to have forgotten he's Alistair Campbell. Um, he was uh, There was a clip of him on Newsnight. He was on with Alex something. Um, the leader of the Reclaim or the Reform Party. I don't know. I can't remember which is which. But um, So they're having a debate, debate about Brexit. It got a little bit heated. And he said to Alex, Alex Phillips, I think her name is, you're talking nonsense, you know. Well, he was just, he, he in a shock development, he decided to be Alistair Campbell. And uh, so he was, he was quite rude to her. And then she came back and he went, uh, he called her my dear or something, which I would say in 2023 is a bold shout to speak to uh, an adult woman uh, in that way. And then the debate got brought to a close by the host, Victoria Derbyshire. And then our boy, Alistair, he made the phenomenal decision to tell off Victoria Derbyshire a senior journalist. He was like, now, now the thing with you, people like you at the BBC, you bring these people on and you never challenge them. You never challenge them. It was both like really patronising, but also really fucking petulant and, and childlike. 
And of course, you know, they, a lot of people were saying, well, this is, you know, this is who he is. This is always who he's always been. I mean, let's not forget that the character of Malcolm Tucker was built around who he was when he was director of director of communications at number 10. I mean, I would say if a modern comic grotesque was based around somebody that that sort of tells its own story. Um, but then, of course, a lot of people backed him up. And this is one of the things with the uh, grown ups in the room. They just sort of said, well, he's well, he's right, though. He's right. Okay, so this is is you know being a grown up in the room is actually a curse. It's actually a curse. He has to go around being right all the time. Just so much rightness, and then when somebody isn't right, you know you sort of understand when he's quite sexist because it's on account of how right he is. I I just think you all you have to do is flip that the other way, right? You know Boris Johnson or Jacob Rees-Mogg says that to a woman, and you would say, well, that was proof undeniably that they're a misogynist and a sexist. But even as I'm saying this, I know that the grown-ups in the room going, oh, but the big difference here is that Boris Johnson wasn't right. You see, think about it as the camera. It's just, it's just such a burden being a grown-up in the room. And they also conveniently ignore how often the grown-ups in the room have just been wrong about stuff. And I would just say, if Alistair Campbell's one of his main... His main argument is about the way that the Tories have coarsened public debate, which is pretty rich in itself. I wouldn't then, I wouldn't then go on telly and patronise the shit out of two women. Okay, enough of all that. Let's get into the chat with James Haskell. This was, I mean, just like I say, strap yourselves in. I was just, he's just a smart guy, a funny guy, and exactly what you'd want. He's, he's opinionated. He doesn't hold back like a lot of like a lot of footballers, I would say, seem to modulate everything they're saying through the filter of "Will this get me in trouble?" Uh, no such, no such problems with the brilliant James Haskell. So I'm very pleased to say that that joining me on the podcast is uh, rugby legend, DJ legend, podcasting legend, is a lot of legend. It's James Haskell. Welcome to the show, mate. Hello, Jeff. How are you? It's a great honour, mate. One of my comedy idols and an absolute all-round good lad. So I'm uh, very excited to be invited on your podcast. Well, you know, there are literally there. I mean, the thing is, I, I feel bad because I have, I, I haven't always been completely complimentary about rugby, and I, I, every time I'm not. I get these angry middle-aged, middle-class blokes. But, you know, middle-aged, middle-class blokes don't get fully angry, but they, but they email no, me. They, they get they... perturbed. They get riled up. They get, they get ruddy upset. <laughs> they get they get a bit, bit bloody cross at the way yeah, that... Uh... Wait, they don't say bloody, they get blooming, blooming heck. Yeah. Like, you know, I'll have to have Google guy a piece of my mind if you're not careful. <laughs> Well, it's usually because I'm sort of um, I'm sort of slagging off from a class point of view, but um, that is is that, I mean is is that fair with rugby union? Is 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 it, is it more working class than it was, or still still? I don't know. I've got good I've got good soundproofing on with detached house and a Range Rover, so I don't know what you lot are talking about. Fuck them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fuck them. Wait, I've heard, yeah. Listen, I've seen your sort of four Channel Four documentaries. I don't know. I think <laughs> I know, you're always whining about something, are you? Fair pay, yeah. job opportunities. Fucking give it a rest. Um, I no, I mean, yeah. Look, I think rugby's got yeah. Rugby is elitist in in lots of ways. I think the game's played by much more of a broader spectrum than you would think. Club rugby's much uh, much better, but the uh, you know, I think to honestly, one of the things holding the game back is it's it's run by old duffers. A lot of posh people don't really know what they're doing, uh, don't really understand what they're doing. Um, it's you know held back by all these values. Um, it's just yeah, just a bit shit really. Um, uh, you know, it's it's. Um, I think it's one of those things where 
ultimately, um, it's always going to have that reputation because, you know, that old mm. shit cliche they say, isn't it? Football's a gentleman's game played by thugs and rugby's a thug's game played by gentlemen. What's cricket then? Why is it? I mean, the worst thing for cricket is that it doesn't even have a place in that phrase. And, no. And cricket just, is weird. Cricket's just, I don't know what cricket... I mean, I, look, I actually, I like the shorter format games of cricket. I do enjoy... Um, I do enjoy it. I just, I tried to go to a five day. I mean, it's, it, it's very difficult for me because you, I can't really get behind a sport that I could fall asleep in the stands yeah. quite easily, just have a gentle nap during the afternoon. So I quite like high intensity. And I think, unfortunately, the attention span of people is, is, is being reduced to about 19 seconds these days. So you I mean, need that's to true. Th- that's true, isn't it? If you think about TikTok, but then you also think like our capacity as people to dive into box sets has simultaneously been happening. So on the one hand, we're saying we've got no capacity whatsoever. And on the other hand, we're going 40 hours of succession, please. So yes. is, is, is there, I don't know. Is, is, there, is there two things happening? Either it has to be as good as succession to get us to do that, and Test Cricket is trying to be more entertaining. Or, or you know, that's what I... Look, I think, I think what people say, you know, people always say, what people say, I mean, look, unless you look yeah. at science, I, I do believe that the fact that digestible content, the, the scrolling mentality means that certain things we, we, we will digest very quickly and not give it a second thought. And we, hmm. we're now... Perpetually going to continually judge a, uh, or same word, perpetually continually going to say anything, but going to con- continue to judge a book by its cover, like we always have, we pretend we don't. I think, yes, when, when people have an engagement and the quality lasts, and people will binge. I think mm. that's right. I think, I don't, I think maybe it's different habits in different, in different areas. Um, you know, as I said, I think rugby, you know, could be a really, it should be a much bigger sport, but unfortunately, um, it's just too complicated. People don't understand it. It's not played everywhere. And there is this kind of a tag, whereas football is a common man sport. You can pick up a football, play it with two jumpers and goalposts. You don't really need to understand it. I mean, the most complicated thing in football that everyone laughs about is the offside rule. Yeah. I mean, like, that's the most basic rule of rugby. Like, that, that, that wouldn't even, you know, that wouldn't even worry about anyone. So it wouldn't well, make anyone sort of be slightly concerned, you know? Well, what, my, what I find interesting with my mates that really do love rugby is you watch it with them and then you sort of ask them to explain refereeing decisions and they don't know. You know, and these are these are yeah. people that, that, that love the sport. It is it is all a bit opaque. I mean, I suppose what's interesting now as well is if you look at like if you go back to the eighties, the difference between uh, the man or woman on the terrace and the person on the pitch. You know, they weren't coming from completely different worlds. But you could say that the difference between people and the super wealthy in football is now exponentially bigger than it is in rugby. You know, as as well as people can earn out of rugby, you, they're not you know they're not on sort of Galactico type money, are they? No, not at all. Uh, look, I think the game has become uh, much more kind of, um, it's, you know, look, the game has gotten bigger. So there's more stars, there's more characters. It's still you know, nothing like it should be. I think that it is, you know, it is a fully legitimate professional sport. It's been professional, you know, a lot, you know, uh, not not for that long, a long period of time, to be honest with you, but it's sort of picking up. I think the women's game is now um, developed. It's probably developing more so than anything, uh, which is... Um, you know, which is fantastic, and they're hopefully going to build the game in a way that you know the men's game didn't didn't do right and may, you know, learn from a lot of those mistakes. Uh, but the money the money is getting better, and I think the media are taking much more of an interest in rugby as a sport and also um, as a tab as tabloid fodder. You know, there are some mm-hmm. characters, but unfortunately, they're just not on the same level as as footballers, which is a good a good thing. You know, because somebody I mean, I, I've I've been on the side of come some bad press. Um, you know, and, and people sort of looked into things I, I, I've done, and they're taking interest. But footballers have it way worse because they're just on a bigger, on a on a bigger scale. There's much more interest in it. You're going to sell more papers if you catch someone out. But I think rugby players are beginning to get that kind of 
to get that kind of heat. And also because of the class perception, uh, as it were, yes, you know, as I said, there is some validity to it. Because of that, there's nothing like knocking down a couple of ex-public school toffs to, to sort of, you know, raise a smile for the masses. You know, the, 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 mm, the these privileged, the, entitled louts. Yes, yes. <laughs> give, you know, give the you know give the masses bread and circuses, and they will be happy. You know, hang a posh bloke who played rugby out to dry, and everyone goes, "See, see, I fucking told you that yeah. you know that those, those you know they're all up to no good. Not like our you know lovely footballers." <laughs> Well, I mean, footballers just got maybe they just got better lawyers now. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that about the the kind of culture and the laddish components of rugby. When you came on, when I was um, depping on Times Radio, we spoke about your book, and I think one of the interesting things there is that is the anecdotes because obviously rugby is fantastic for stories, bawdy yes. uh, anecdotes and stuff like that. How how conscious were you writing that book of the need to kind of go, and I'm not saying it's okay, because I call it now these days, you have to do it in comedy, what I call the terms and conditions. But you yes. still want, I mean, essentially what you were sort of saying is, look, I know that I'm not supposed to think this is hilarious, but I know that you also want to read these fucking stories. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Uh, you know, you're, you're caveat, you have to caveat everything. Everything now comes with, because what happens, especially in comedy, is... What, I, what you and I say comes out of our mouths and then goes into your filter. So everything I say will go into your filter of mm. your childhood, your current emotional state, the fact that you've been told that you're a special unicorn, unique, and that you can achieve anything in your life, and the fact that now you've got a voice and you can complain about anything. And if you don't like it, you don't just move on. You've now got an opportunity to, to vocalise that. And so before, it was very simple. I'd hear something, see a comedian, oh, I didn't laugh. If you're a prick, you'd heckle. Uh, it all that was the end of it, and you would leave a reviewer up to do the review. Now I come out, I didn't like it. I go on social media, like-minded people in the echo chamber of life. They they sort of keep that going, and then suddenly you know you feel like a special little person, a part of a group because other people agreeing with you. You get the endorphins, the dopamines, the dopamine, and then you're suddenly you know flying, um, you know flying with it. And I think that's unfortunate. Whereas you know we've got this belief thing that actually feelings are much more important than. Um, common sense and also just difference of opinion. I think that, you know, what I, I'm not meant to like everything. There isn't a uniform, there isn't a funny thing. There isn't a subject you can laugh about or can't, um, uh, you know, discuss. I think you have to be very careful about certain things because of, you know, you could be very clumsy around certain difficult topics. Like some comedians can blunder mm. into things and actually don't treat it. But actually more often than not, it's, 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 um, kind of uh it's more about the it's not about the the, the fact that same people make rape jokes and that kind of stuff mm. you know i'd never go anywhere near that because i don't feel like a i've got something that uh would be worth hearing about i don't think it would be funny and i think the payoff's not worth it some guys um you know like cancer jokes like ricky gervais are able to do that because they do it very well and they, then it's normally about a juxtaposition between uh the horrificness of cancer that affects everyone and a funny story about that, you know, when he talks about, you know, he donates a lot of money to charity and he throw the bloke off the machine the first time he got he got he got got cancer. You know, we've now got ourselves into a situation where we're like, well, that's wrong. I don't like that. You can't have that. You can't say that. You fucking can. You just mm. don't have to like it. And like, just as I, I don't like certain foods, um, doesn't mean we have to have one blanket food. And I think we've forgotten that. And because the internet's given a voice to to everybody and they don't all deserve it. You know, people always have freedom of speech, but you weren't able to share that freedom of speech mm. as well as you should. And that doesn't mean it's right. You know, not everyone should be able to shout the rooftops everything they think. You should be able to say what you think, but mm. in the closest of your own home. Like if you want to be racist, you know, you're a dickhead. But if you want to be racist, you can shout at your nan, you can shout at your dad, you can shout at your mum in your 
in your living room. You just can't, you shouldn't be able to go onto a global platform and allow your opinion to filter behind everything and then say it's freedom of speech. So when I wrote the books with all these stories in them, I mm. was aware that I was like, right, is it truth? Yes. Um, you know, will I, can I write it in such a way that it's clear that I obviously know that it probably wasn't the best thing, but it still happened. It's still funny. It's still... Um, it's of its time. Of its time. But it, and of its time is a very good point. You know, we, we, we are where we are now because we improved on the standards that were then. You know, you don't go around pulling down statues and, and, and blaming stuff that happened then. But if we're doing it now, then you've got a point. You've got mm. a point. You can go, oh, listen, this person is still influential now. He got it wrong and we're still doing shit now. Be better now. Sort things out now. Life's now. Don't go, oh, 10 years ago you did this, um, but I, you don't do it now, but we're still going to hang you for it. It's like fucking, it's, that's just stupid. It's like mm. you've got history to learn from. And so I think with the books, I, I, over time, you know, this was probably a bit more liberal, but actually there is still a universal thing that I was a dickhead, that I'm quite happy to say I was a dickhead. I acted like a fucking clown. I had a lot of fun doing it. You know, is it palatable to everyone? No. Do I want to be palatable to everyone? No. Is what everybody does palatable? No. So don't mm. fucking worry about it. And so the thing is that I I kind of broke the mold with that um with that book because I um kind of just was able to be truthful without sort of being overtly controversial and kind of owning it. Do you, I mean there were some parts of it that were memorable with the book? I particularly there was a story about the guy, I think he was a physio called The Rope. He had a nickname of the rope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, a, it wasn't it was yeah. Yeah, he had a uh, massive penis, basically, like a, yes, a, a freakishly penis. large penis. Uh, and 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 you, sp- I mean, this is one of the things I think is about interesting about sportsmen is that you see more penises, you know, on a more regular basis I, than anybody. I, someone reminded me of this quote. I was so one of the crew who was filming Good Bad Rugby yesterday um, on our because we were away doing anything in Ibiza. Said to me that on a plane, I stopped him and I said. <laughs> <laughs> I said to I stopped and went, do you know what? I have seen an inordinate amount of penis, right? Yeah. And then they went, what? And I went, well, I've just realised this. From the age of seven years old to 35, <laughs> I've showered with men every day. Yeah. But, but give or take, give or take, right? Or some, some of it's my private life, some of it's my, you know, but yeah, um, yeah. give or take, right? Prep school, communal showers, right? Public school, um, team showers, post showers, some were a bit more private, professional rugby player, communal showers. Just penis. So you, are we saying then that, that, that a, a, a rugby player that went to like prep school and stuff is probably pound for pound going to see more penis than anyone else yeah. alive? I, I, would, I would, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a few, you know, there's probably a few people we could put on the list. Without, I've had, don't get myself there's probably a few people on the list you could throw in there that have had a good go at it. I would say... <laughs> I would, and, and that, but that, but the caveat to that would be that they actively wanted to see them. You know, mm. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not squeamish. Like I, I was talking to someone about um, some LGBT plus Q stuff in regards to kind of home, homophobia, and I always love the sort of backwards common man concept that if your mate was gay or your teammate was gay, the first thing he always goes, yeah, yeah, but I, I, I would, I'd be a little bit concerned if in the shower case I looked, and I always mm. turn around and say, listen, mate, you're fucking hanging whether I'm gay or straight. Like, it doesn't matter. Gay men don't suddenly just lose their eyesight. It's the same way yeah, yeah, it's not every yeah. woman wants to have sex with you. Just because I, if I went gay, I still wouldn't shag you because you're hanging, right? So so not you, <laughs> I mean, but just the general the, the general you. And so I find that very funny. But yeah, pound for pound, I have seen just... and seen, seen some legends. 
Mine's seen some legends out there. I mean, it is. I think that you know, um, Catherine Ryan always says that she thinks that men are in a way more interested in penises than women, and I think that there is something about the mythical power of the incredibly well hung man. It's almost like. He's almost like a captain that we march behind. You know, we, we need to know yeah. that, that, that there's one in our team. I mean, the I go- think, sorry, I just, I mean, like the rope, the, you know, the, I mean, the rope, the rope, <laughs> the rope had such long penis that when he was 14, he used to be Great Britain wrestler. His, um, his, his wrestling coach in the shower, like just laying out the shower, just like talking, looked in and went, mm. <laughs> went Bobby, has your dad seen that? Right, it was, <laughs> it was that, it was that fucking big, right? Yeah. That, um, and mate, you know, he, he, he it basically the rope had magic healing powers. So if you yeah. ever had an injury, he would come out of nowhere and ask you, mate, do you need rope? And you'd be like, yeah, Bob, I need rope. And he'd hit his penis on your injury, and yeah. it would feel markedly better. He could also hit a full can of Red Bull seal off a table with it. Um, and he obviously had all the penis through <laughs> the puppetry, but it was, it was, and it because he it was like, just. Yeah, tall and long. I mean, you know, he 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 yeah. was a very impressive man. Now, I would say that I would say that Catherine is probably right in regards to, you know, men forget that a penis is like like are probably not that amazingly attractive. If you look at it, both vaginas yeah. and penises on. If you were to take them in the cold light of day and you weren't to know what they were for, and you were just mm. to show an alien, they're not really that good looking. Like some, no. you know, we make it good looking. Like if you see a vagina, you're like, wow, that's a good vagina. Like. <laughs> that's a good vagina out of the vaginas you've seen out of the concept of you know yeah that tidy that's you know like tidy, you know i think a, a good vagina is sort of you know those really kind of like good storage solutions where yes. it all folds you go well that is it well yeah done. that's excellent yeah. that folds away nicely seamless right but you know nothing nothing hanging out but the thing with it is that you would then but if you're going to design something to, mm. to, to to like not be great it would be a fold of skin in the body if you're like, yeah. going to grow something that could like harbor bacteria and 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 smell it. It would be a skin pocket <laughs> in your body, right? So, but then you think about it, it's rank a penis. You look at them. The first thing men do online, you know, gay or straight or whatever, whatever you're into, you know, the first belief is they get a bit horned up and they're like, oh, I'm going to send this because because they're yeah. going to love it, right? With the expectation that a girl or a man's going to open and go, fucking hell. I was I was having my tea, but now I've seen that. I'm, yeah. I'm, what's your name? Can you come around and bang me? Whereas especially with women, they get bombarded with penis shots and some of them are hanging. And I'm like, I just don't know what the men think is going to happen. Cause in their mind, they're so clouded by testosterone and horniness that they, they, they genuinely go, Oh shit. When she sees this and I guarantee you will not run out, come and then be like, Oh my God. Well, I Why think I that, that I think that what I've learned over the years with women is, is penises. Like it's very much a context thing. You know, like there's certain foods that you've really got to be in the mood for. It doesn't, the moment you take the context away, it, it, it's almost it's almost abstract, the value of a penis. I mean, yes. I was writing, um, it's writing a book that I've got coming out. I was writing about balls, you know, as well. Yeah. Is I've always been, you know, like we talk about men checking their own balls. One of the reasons I don't, and I, I should, but I, I'm just being honest, I don't, and I should. He's yeah. that well, no, I just don't, I think they're so weird, right? And this I, is what I've I got. Don't, I don't play with them, but I, like, I don't, I, as a thing, yeah. testicles, they don't really serve, well, they obviously have a great purpose, but I don't, they don't feature in my day life. But because I'm now that age, I'd say two or three times a week, I check them just to see. I've got to check them, right. haven't I? Yeah, yeah, no, I've got to check them. But they just, it's the vulnerability of them. You know, it's sort of like, and I think, I think I say this in the book, but I was sort of saying, you know those animals that choose to live on the side of a cliff? Yes. And, and you think, well, why the fuck would you live there? Um, I think that about balls. I think it's an incredible, essentially they've got the balls to be balls. Maybe that's why they're a metaphor for courage. 
But you know what? You do know why they'd hang outside the body to keep it cool. You know that, don't you? Yeah, you know. I, I guess they ended up like, well, this is the only place we can live. We, we've got it's to a point. We, yeah. So we want, we want, it's like a conservatory. It's like a conservatory that yeah. you know, but it's a temperature-controlled conservatory on the side of your house. We're like, look, you know, but, uh, evolution. Your sperm actually can't survive at extreme temperatures. We need to put it in a cooling system outside the body. I know what we'll do. We'll put it in a sack. Yes. With two flowing things, and then we'll just put, and then they'll be quite weird, and some yeah. will be big. I mean, I've got a friend who's, I mean, talk about Pete. I mean, I, again, you know, I sound like an expert. Dude. I mean, maybe I could get an honorary doctorate, like Imperial. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen people with balls. I've seen people with balls that you'd look at them and think they've got elephantitis. Like, I remember seeing yeah. one guy, he, he, they were so big. It, uh, <laughs> mate, he had to shower with his pants on. Like, and, and there's another guy that's a very famous <laughs> England player. There's an actually inter- photo on the internet. I won't name and shame, but he actually got he got trapped. I mean, he got them stamped on right during a game mm. when they got ripped open, and he had to mm. go and have and one of them bit Tesco was hanging out. He had to go stitch back up. Mm. I mean, to be fair, the bloke was probably just going for his leg, but the chance of hitting his ball <laughs> was was, was, was you know, way way bigger than hit his leg. Um, and they're huge, huge. And I just again, I, I'm not a big ball man. I don't you know, but I would I would I would check them because I think. Um, it's just one of those things where I've had a couple of mates who had testicular cancer and cut the stuff off. For one, they're just checking them. It's worth it. It's interesting because when you, know, when you listen to your podcast, you seem to be able to go seamlessly from, you know, being blokish and stuff like that into, you know, having a, a, a message as, as well at the same time. Mm. We know that footballers, people like Marcus Rashford and stuff like that, have become vehicles for you know social justice in some respects and, and causes. To what extent is that happening in rugby? Are rugby players getting courted saying, "Oh, you should be talking about this," or you haven't really taken a position on that? I think, I think right. I think the first thing is that I mean, what Marcus Rashford does is brilliant. I think it's something that he, you know, he is passionate about. You know, there are things that the agents and people try to retrofit onto people that mm. don't have that. Hate this word, but that kind of. Um, what is the word? Not honesty, but uh, um, authenticity. Authenticity. That's the one everyone throws around. Authentic. Is it authentic? Is it authentic? Mm. You know, Michael Rashford has a real authentic feel to what he's doing. He obviously cares about it, and he's good at it, and he's and he's driven change. I think it's very, very dangerous to get involved in things that have no authenticity to you. That you don't fucking care about because a, you won't put the effort into. B, you will get found out. And I think you know. Uh, the problem again with, with a lot of stems from social media and the thing of, of opinion is just as if I my wife posts about right here's a recipe right for pancakes and someone goes well what about a vegan fucking recipe what about <laughs> this what about that what about people who don't like milk what about people who are fat what about people who are thin what about and you then you've got a caveat 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 right so mm. what I what she just posted is that this is just talking to these specific men's orders or members of the public this is nothing to do with it it's the same thing with me I made a stand about um a former well, he's a still current player, fantastic player, incredible player, who um, is overtly religious. And with some of that religion comes that backward thinking of chastising certain members of the society. Basically, he said that gay people are going to go to hell, right? And I thought, fucking hell, you, you know, whatever you believe, whatever God, whatever whatever you believe in, it's all bollocks anyway. But whatever you do, I respect it. Like, you know, mm. just, um, but there were young, young men who were struggling with their sexuality who will look at you as a hero and you just condemn them to hell. Yeah, and yeah. If, they're, if they're idol, who is a good-looking, super-talented sportsman, says a gay... It's just fucking... You just don't need to do it. Mm. I stood up to him, got got massively bashed. And I, I do find this quite funny that I found that... I did religious studies at school for... From, like, again, 8 to, you know, 15, 16. 
and I, and I had a friend who was very religious who took me to Bible schools and all this kind of stuff. I never drank the Kool-Aid, but I, you know, I sort of mm. know about it. And uh, it's very interesting. They always turn about kind of being forgiving and turning the other cheek. I've never met a group of more unforgiving bastards than super religious Christians and whatever. They just don't, they just, they literally are, are like vicious with it across mm. it. You know, like hence you see religious wars. It's like, we love God. We talk about peace, but fucking agree with us or I'll kill you. And I remember coming out and saying that I thought this was wrong. And I've um, I've never had so many people come and go. Well, what, where where are you when the you know where are you when they're you know they're throwing um, when the Muslims are doing this or you're throwing or the gay people are being thrown off a building and and I'm like it's I'm not here to fight everyone's fucking battles. Yeah, I've yeah. got an opinion about something that I felt strongly about at this particular time. I'm not walking around going trying to correct the world. And I think unless something becomes in rugby that will that will encourage you know that, that for example would make you you know feel like you have a valid impact then i would do that i think rugby players are starting to do that i think some of them have gone down the path of their agents gone fucking hell rashford's you know on the way to a knighthood yeah that's what i think does 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 that happen they must get because like people who front up charities and stuff like that it must be quite especially with the most high profile footballers it's like all things i mean we're probably both us the longer you get in this game the more different strands of showbiz that you interface with you see what the game is as such. And if someone yeah. has a voice and a platform, they're going to get courted. So so I guess what we're saying is, is that some of them are kind of, I guess they get pitched to in a way. Maybe, yeah. they, maybe it should be like Dragon's Den, but for Yeah, retro, can, can we retrofit a scheme onto you? But I've had that before, where they're like, you know, would you like to do this? I'm like, no, I don't. But it's a great mm. cause, but I don't fucking care. I don't you, hate, like, you, uh, you hate poor people. Why would you stick up for poor people? That's what I mean. I don't exactly. want to raise money for them. No. You know, <laughs> can't, we get, can't we give tax breaks to the rich like we all deserve? Finally, like, you know? someone's speaking up for it. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but no, so I think, you know, I, get, I do a lot of stuff with children's charity. So a, a charity called Sebastian's Action Trust, done stuff with Bernardo's, and I've also done stuff with Matt Hampson's um, charity and Restart, right? Basically, because they are all things that I care about. Mm. I'm not, everyone has a cause. Right, obviously poverty and cost of living crisis is horrific. I obviously care about it. I care about those things, but I can't, I don't immediately affect them. I don't feel that like I could, uh, what, I, what I feel passionate about is, for example, restart is, you know, catastrophic injury to, to professional sports players um, on restarting your career. You know, most people don't have to retire, you know, they retire once in life. You retire twice, you've got no discernible skills, you've wrecked your body, you know, you give no financial aid. There's obviously all the issues associated with sport. That was one charity. Sebastian's Action Trust was a, was a charity of a young boy that my parents um, met and who met his parents sat at a dinner. He sadly passed away, but all he ever wanted to do was go on holiday. But he had a terminal illness. You couldn't go on holiday because of all the palaver, the medical stuff. So they built this um, care home called Bluebells, and that was an opportunity for families to go into the country, a home from home, close to emergency services, had everything on hand, but could have some normality. And I was like, fucking hell. I am so lucky to have done what I've done as a kid. I came from a privileged background. I wanted for nothing. I did have a lot of hardship, more so than anyone else. And I got to achieve what I wanted to achieve. So many kids don't make it past their birthday. So many kids die in birth. So many people aren't afforded that thing. And I think, mm. you know, I'm not saying that human life is is weighed up, but, you know, if you're 90 and something happens, you've had a good fucking go. And it's sad, always sad. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. always sad. And anything unfortunate happening is sad. But when a life is taken away, um young i mean that's why i don't believe in god because you know you can't tell me that um somebody kills three million children under five um every year you know and just mm. claims he's working in mysterious ways is 
a god that I would want to get involved in, whatever, which one everyone is, because I think... And maybe he's just like us, he's like going, I can't do everything, lads, you know what I mean? I've only got someone, I can only say to people I give a shit about, you know what I mean? Yeah, just stop killing kids, that'd be the first bit, I'd just go, I'll tell you what you should do, just, you know you made the the world in seven days, you remember you made all the stars of the planets, right, and then the next day you said, let there be light, and you did it in the dark, which is the most impressive thing, and then you went and you made a man out of clay, just stop, put all that shit down, Get rid of cancer for kids. Get rid of leukemia for kids. Get rid of all that stuff, and then you can have you can carry on doing what you're doing. That's all I'd ask. Just do that. Get and rid also, of get rid of cancer. Yeah, seems kill, kill, the devil. kill the devil. Kill the devil. <laughs> just do that because you made the devil. Because you make everything. Why just kill the devil? But anyway, that's too complicated because they can't do that because there's a plan and we're all part of that. No, I, I like I like the kill the devil thing. It is kind of weird that he hasn't taken him out. If you Go think on, about on. like. If there is some sort of celestial kind of special ops thing, you go, this guy has been most wanted for a while. He's been just causing shit for, for a long time now. He, got, he, got, he built, he made the oceans, right, mm. and all the land, and then he just went, filled it with animals just as he wanted it to do. You're telling me that he, got, he did he, So if you believe the Bible, the devil's a fallen angel. God mm. made the angel just go like that, boop, squash him. Then there's no more, there's no more devil, but he can't do that. So again, it just, it's all man-made nonsense because it just doesn't make sense. It's just people trying to find purpose and an explanation in this mad world that we somehow found ourselves in. But I would say most of the things I care about are with kids um, and kind of, uh, you know, certain passion projects. So you will not see me trying to retrofit a thing because I think people could do it better. You know, Marcus Ratchford has genuinely, profoundly changed people. And in this cost of living crisis where people have got to decide when they heat the house, feed their kids, you know, I hopefully some sort of form of, of food and aid is there. But unfortunately, like everything in life, it's very easy for me to say I'm my, my ivory tower. There isn't, there is, you're just moving a pot of money round or solutions round for people. And I think it's made even worse when you find out how much the government's wasted on stupid pet projects or, or line their pockets with. But unfortunately, I think there's always going to be the haves and the have-nots. And it's it's where you can most make your, your mark. And I think someone I- like him has done a profound job. I think, I don't know if you noticed, you know when you do like celebrity quiz shows and stuff like that, one of my favourite moments is when the, the host says, and what are you raising money for? And the celebrity says their thing. And like, obviously like with yourself, if you say a kids charity, everyone's great, cancer, everyone's great. Every once in a while, there's a charity where people go, that sounds like a fucking waste of time. Yeah. And, and, and they go like something like, well, there's a, re- a retired donkey sanctuary yes. in Eastbourne. And you go, okay, you had your... Okay, fair enough. Yeah, donkeys. Yeah, I you know, guess this is controversial. I reckon of all the things I said that this is most because I love animals, right? I love animals. Yeah. Big dog, like I love. I love it. Cruelty to animals is awful, but I've got to say, right, the outrage on the internet of a of a uh, someone hurting an animal. Bear in mind there are children dying, being mm. abused, being sold, malnourished. Everything. Humans are so good. Just ignoring one part of it, switching their mind off because everyone lives in a but look, unless you are on the forefront of any of the extremes we're talking about, we all live in a bubble. You know, that's why when you drive, drive past a car accident, if you actually see part of the accident, that you're like, fuck me, you know, these cars aren't that safe. And actually, the human body is very fragile. And actually, you know, that's why these first mm. responders I'm amazed by because you see the fragility. As a man, you like to think you're quite tough. You know, people. Your arms get ripped off, shit gets, it's, it's terrific. The human body's very fragile. Life is very fragile. So when people go, well, you know, I'd save the dog over this, you're like, look, I know it makes you feel easier because animals can't really talk back to you, but you're kind of ignoring all the uh, all the children suffering, all the actual problems with humans. And I would say that 
I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I would say human life is much more important than animal well, life. Well, I guess we have the sense of our... and I think the fact that we can perceive our own suffering and narrativise it, it, it does put in... As, yeah, and so, yeah, if anyone wants to email in, yes, I do fucking hate dogs. Fucking yeah, yeah. I just, hate dogs. You know, you see it. I, I, I would say, look, you know, if you've given a lot of money to somebody and you would you want to give money to, to a dog charity, then, then mm. that's, that's fine. I just... I just animal life is not worth more than a human life. And I think until we have sorted out all the problems that face humans, you know, and if I think you should prioritize that, you know, but don't, I'm not saying you don't help dogs, charity, animal charities, you should. Mm. But I think for Paul Cord, if you only got 20 pounds, that's the only 20 pounds you're ever going to give, give it to something that's going to help a, a human. If you've got more than 20 pounds, feel free to give it who you want. But if you get, you know, we save a dog, save a human, I'd save a human because for all the reasons you just said. But I, yeah. I would, I mean, I support, I mean, I, I was on that, um, uh, you know, that someone stopped me in the street and I now pay, what was it, a tenner a month for like Battersea Dogs Home or whatever. I'm still doing it now. I mean, I, yeah. and I get pictures of like dog and I love it. And I, but I also do the same thing with, um, with, with, with children's <laughs> charities. But, I, but I'm, not, I'm in that privileged position to be able to do that. I just mean the people who are so vitriolic about anyone who hurts an animal versus humans. Well, like, there is, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Like the character of Tony Soprano in the very first episode of The Sopranos, he's feeding the ducks, isn't he? And there is that correlation. I'm, I'm always slightly alarmed when people want to overstress their love of animals too, because like when, when they sort of like, so, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather um, I'd rather spend my time with animals than humans. I think, well, you've got issues then like that. That's not how it's supposed to. Well, yeah, yeah, you could. I mean, a dog is a creature. I've, I've got, I've got two dogs, and I loved them. But I think part of loving something is seeing it for its flaws. And one of them is a thieving bastard, and the other one is a narcissist, right? And that is real love. That is what they are. It, this is, this isn't some fucking like charitable endeavour. They're, they're here, and they're nice to me because I give them food and I take them for walks, and that's fine, right? But rest assured, they'd eat you if you died, and there was nothing around. If, if they ever realise their collective power, like dogs. Yeah. That's why I'd never have more than two in the house because if they no. wanted to stage a mutiny, like no. especially I mean, the I, big ones as well. No, I mean I look. Weirdly, I'm one of those people that won't walk past a dog without saying hello to it, talking to it. Any cute animal, anywhere, I hold it. Birds, I don't care. I love animals. Like Chloe bollocks me because on holiday I'm like, oh look, there's an animal. Look at that bird. Look at that crow. Mm. Look at this. Whatever. Um, and I, you know, snake. I don't care. But <laughs> the thing with it is, you always see certain type of perv on the internet when they've got more pictures of dogs or sorry more pictures of animals than themselves you know that they don't they're not very comfortable with the way they look and you also know that they're desperate for love and you also know they have found the love in an animal that they can project what they think onto it um that is you know of all the things i've ever spoke about in this podcast i guarantee that's the one that's going to get um some of the biggest pushback All right, I hope, I hope you're enjoying the chat with James there. I hope you've got some great mental images there, probably to do with rope. Um, just a reminder, you can pre-order my book, uh, The British Bloke Decoded, which is now, it's in, it's done, it's written. Pre-order it, please, read, please, please. Okay, if you haven't, if you, have you ever given me a five-star review for this um, for this podcast, you can do that, that would be good, but you could just order the book. My, my argument is, if you're going to eventually get it, why not pre-order it, all right? Please pre-order it. And... Um, also, just some tour dates to give a little tickle to. Lincoln Drill Hall, I'm at, uh, on the 16th of September. I'm in Halifax on the 21st of September. That's a weird part of the world, isn't it? Halifax, Leeds, Bradford. That bit of the M62 has got so many big fucking towns there, and they've all got different accents and strange cultures. <laughs> and I'm sure I've never, I've never done a tour show in Halifax. 
Um, but uh, there'll probably be some weird thing afterwards where they have to sacrifice me to the uh, the northern gods. Uh, Peterborough, the 28th of September. Carlisle, Wednesday, the 18th of October. I'm in Dundee uh, on the 18th of November. And I'm also in uh, Belfast on the 24th of November. And then Dublin on um, the 25th of November. And I promise you, if you come along, I will do the accents. I'll do my Belfast. How? I can't, how how's my Belfast? What about you, wee man? You're right there, wee man. You almost have to shout a little bit just to get into it. Get get into it. Oh, fucking. The thing with accents is that I used to be good at them, but I can't go more than a... Can't go for more than a sentence now, which is sort of like my sexual prowess. I could start fine. It, and then Dublin. And the Dublin accent. I normally get my head around it by going, by the banks of the liffy. I'll be there in a jiffy. This is just culturally insensitive. This ain't selling any tickets, is it, really? Um, 2024, there's new dates. There's an extra date in, in Bristol in uh, the Red Grey Theatre. That's already sold quite a few. I'm going to be in Mansfield. I'm going to be in Loughborough. I'm going to be doing shows, by the way. I'm not just going to be fucking lurking around there. And I'm also going to be in Kings Lynn. First ever tour date in Kings Lynn. So do buy tickets for that. And now let's get back to the chat with James Haskell. So I want to talk about DJing because this is a this is a rare opportunity for me on this podcast. I mean, I'll often the, the listeners will often hear me say I went out for a day party here somewhere, and you know, like the sort of self-styled sad veteran clubber hanging on in there. But you are essentially sort of living my dream. Really, is that you did one thing and um, you are now a, like a DJ producer. I mean, it's incredible. How long? I want to know how long ago, how long this has been a part of you. You know, were you into your house music back way back in your rugby days and stuff? Yeah. So, so basically, I so the story about me and music was I started seeing a sports psychologist when I was seventeen to help with performance. Um, and the first thing she talked about was how to consistently perform uh, for thirty games a season. You know, back in the day, you could do it for eight games a season. You could do anything on emotion first time round, but you have to do anything repeatedly. You, you need to find um, some structures in place. And she talks about the emotive power of music. We hear a song that changes our state. So where energy goes, where focus goes, energy flows. So, you know, you're having a shit time, you listen to a shit song, it's awful. If you break up and you turn on Magic FM in your car, you're just driving straight into a wall, crying, screaming, going, I hate you. If you break up and, and your favourite song comes on, and like my, you know, whatever it is, Michael Jack, you feel like, yeah, I'm actually fucking loving life here. Fuck her or him or whatever, you'll, you'll be fine. Um, and I think, you know, that's a kind of a, a flippant way of doing it. But with rugby, if I had a playlist of songs when I heard them, they emotionally made me feel good, believe in myself, recall times that I had performed well. And you'd obviously update that. And I started to do that. And I would every three months would change my playlist. And I found as soon as I put my headphones on to prepare for a game, I was ready. Whatever state I was in, tired, upset, had an argument with my partner, I was ready to go. Um, and I was when I first started, I was the only player with headphones on on the bus. Bear in mind that everyone's got headphones on. Beats by dress mm. everywhere. Um, but, you know, back in the day, I was the only one. So much so, it used to upset people. They used to go, look, what are you listening to? Can you get You need to concentrate. You're not listening. Mm. Um, now it's now people listen to it. And so I always had understood the power of music. My tastes, when I first started, I think I had like Walk in Memphis, Coldplay, Oasis, all that kind of stuff. And then I started going to Vegas. I started going to Ibiza. Vegas more than anyone. Go to the pool parties. Someone sitting at the front of the pool uh, with a DJ deck. DJing, everyone having a great time. He can, him or her, controlling the entire mood of the of the vibe. Uh, I'm in a massive attention seeker. I clearly love the sound of my own voice, as the listeners would get a guess or, or figured out. Why would I not want to DJ? I love technology. I'm a proper nerd for computers, mm. for laptops, for drones, for bits and pieces. 
So it was the perfect calling, really. And then I I started to go to um, Ibiza as well, started to get that vibe. Uh, obviously, all this was kind of, you know, uh, non-drug take. I was kind of just like that alcohol and kind of going and experiencing that kind of that kind of life. And I just absolutely loved it. And so I did a course um, from a now defunct uh, school. Um, and at the end of the course, uh, I think it was like three months, there's lots of one-on-one lessons. If you were good enough, you got to DJ at um, Ministry of Sound on the balcony. I did it. I, I just was like, wow, I love this. It filled all the boxes of being, of, of being a player and now in retirement, being a rugby player in terms of uh, preparation, intensity, jeopardy, uh, you know, uh, the performance mm. aspect, the adulation from the crowd and the fact you've got the emotive power of the music. Those kind of things get into a heady mix of like, wow, this is a perfect kind of box ticker. I then, you know, got an agent. Agent was like, right, he's a bit of a dickhead. He was like, why are you... Um, uh, what you know? Why did you get into DJ? And I said, "Oh, because I, I want to love play music. It's good because you won't earn any money." And then he booked me to pay my first gig for three grand, and I was like, "Mate, that is a fucking ton of money. Like, you know, this will be fine." Yeah. So I, <laughs> so I DJ, and anyway, I don't with not with him anymore. But he said, "Listen, I think you should maybe try and get a radio show or do your own podcast. Set that up." Then they were like, "Oh, I think you're being held back because you don't make music." So I was like, "All right, fuck you. I'll go and do a production course. Started making music. Started working with engineers. So basically, my journey has been born out of people telling me I'll never be able to do it." Can't do it, mm. shouldn't do it. Laughed at me, and um, I've now just booked thirteen dates in Ibiza. I've got my first residency in Ocean Beach starting on Monday. I've got my seventh, seventh, well, my eighth tracks coming out in August. My seventh was out um, on Tourum Records um, two weeks ago. So Matt, I'm just I'm very happy with it. Again, it's a it's a perfect tool to replace playing. Um, the lifestyle is very difficult in regards. But to But that's travel. one thing that I, yeah, I wanted to ask is like, how hard is the the, the, obviously, you're in a party environment where where all those things are available and common. How hard is the managing what time you get to bed? But I mean, luckily, you know there are a lot more daytime parties now. But I just I've never got my head around how if you're set if your sort of set time is three a.m. is yeah. what the preparation is like. Do you go to bed for a little while and then set the set the alarm, or is it you know, or do you <laughs> well, just try and stay so, up? So to be honest with you, the there's a couple of times where I've I've, I've basically. I would sleep and go and wake up. It's always horrible though, because it's, you know, you sort of, unless you've got a tour manager, which I, I now have at the times, but you'd be fearful of missing that, um, the, the, the wake up so you don't really sleep. You know, it's like when you have to get up early for an airport, you yeah, kind of yeah, think yeah. set like eight alarms. Um, the hardest bit is because, you know, if you've ever gone and that way, which you really had a late night, but you're not drunk, you still wake up being as shit minus sleep. Not, well, not mm. as shit, you're not throwing up on your hands and these, you know, praying but you, you you know you sort of feel pretty bad and you get sort of almost hung over with lack of sleep that's a problem you know then you couple that with travel and on planes and inability to sleep and the adrenaline post a show you just don't get a great night's sleep and then you know you obviously want to train so your training takes a dip you're obviously nutritionally um you you know you can sort of get it right in the day but eat, you know get working later into the evening um, you know, if you eat around that period of time, also the alcohol, everywhere you go, people are having a party, you want to have a party, you're sort of on that, on that vibe. Um, so you can see why people get lost down the rabbit hole. I think for me, if you can be disciplined between that, not bite off more than your chip more than you can chew, take care of your health and make those choices. I think it's, it's, it's easier to manage, but again, I'm not at the level, you know, someone like a Nick Fanciulli, you know, I, I spoke to him the, the other day and he, you know, he'd, been Ibiza DJ'd four till seven in the morning, right? Which was like a mass, a mad set time. You know, mm. finishing off the day, goes, has a day off, get flies in, changes suitcase, flies to Dubai for 24 hours, 
comes back, you know, that's going to have a take a toll on you. You know, they looked at your, um, if you sleep in less, less than five hours a night, it's something like you'll, you'd have to fact check this, but from over here in conversation, my wife was having with someone, it kind of raises your risk of dementia and Alzheimer's for 50%, that kind of sleep deprivation continuously. And so, well, yeah. And also it's not sleeping at night when, when humans are, when humans are, rhythm, are supposed yeah, to sleep. Yes. And you, you end up altering a circadian rhythm about when you want to sleep and stuff. And I think you can change it and manage it, but again, it's not, it's not good for you. So that's why you've got to pick and choose, um, you know, what you do with, but I, I am probably the most unhealthy and unfit I've, I've been in my entire career. And I've had to, I had to have a word with myself the other day in regards to like sleep, trying to do too much. Cause I, I was in Ibiza for two days, flew back to, to London, had a night at home, flew to Jersey, DJ 12 till two in, in the morning, Flew to London, DJ'd at Studio 338 for Fat Tony, five till seven. Went to bed, flew out on the Monday at three o'clock in the afternoon, DJ twice on the Tuesday in Amsterdam. Flew back on the Wednesday. And by the time I got back on Wednesday, I was shaking, had a fever, and I was like, and I hadn't even done anything. I wasn't even out my, you know, I hadn't even drunk. I literally tried to be professional, but I just wasn't sleeping. Hotel room shit, and I just, um, I just couldn't deal with it. It is, I mean, it is interesting in the British house scene. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, of all the strands of music, it, it doesn't really get the respect it, it deserves. I mean, one example of that, when the Brit Awards removed it as a category for quite a while. Yeah, and, yeah. and I mean, it was just, but also what I found with dance music is that the, the, the acts that tended to get res, respect were the sort of middle-class friendly type festival acts. Like, you, great love, acts. You, love, you love the old class war, don't you? Like, it's, I try to stoke it wherever I can. But I mean, people like Groove Armada and Chemical Brothers, who are absolutely brilliant. But it seemed like the only people that were worthy of awards, when you've got, I mean, you mentioned Tall Room there. How is Mark Knight not an OBE? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There are these people. I mean, you look at comics. The, you, you've already mentioned the miles that people clock up. People like Nick Fanciulli, Mark Knight, are performing to thousands of people every yeah. fucking week. Not there's not, not like a footballer or a cricketer that has a closed season. They just do it all the time. No, I agree. And look, and actually t- talking to Mark Knight, he, you know, he is one of the most brilliant individuals that I've um, I've met. I mean, I, I got to know Mark probably about a year ago now. Uh, I did a tour room course couple of years three years ago when i started my production uh pete griffiths and the guys over there amazing tom ben remember fantastic sort of um uh, teachers and and i absolutely loved it i got to meet mark and in any walk of life involving the arts you get people a little bit wanky a little bit ethereal a bit of their own ass they talk riddles they're you know they're very disingenuous and because it's a very vacuous self-loving world of course it is um, but he was just the most genuine down-to-earth bloke I've ever met. As soon as I, I was like, he was one of us straight away. I went, right. Like he, He's helped me more than anybody's helped me in the last um, eight months. He's been brilliant. He's been supportive. He's been he's been kind. He's a good laugh. And we just pissed ourselves. And, he, and, he, and he's utterly brilliant. And then I got to see him for the first time live because I listened to mixes, watched YouTube, but I'd never seen him live the other day. And you can see why he's one of the biggest international DJs, mate. The way he kept the intensity the pace, the um, energy of the set and the skill, mate, it was just... Well, what's interesting is I know the kind of people listen to this podcast. They're a great audience, but they will, right? As we're talking, they'll be going, fucking DJ. I don't listen to lyrics. I've listened to songs and clothes. Do you hear the lyrics? I don't listen to it. I'm all about the beat. And so I, I, I never really paid attention. She was like, that song you really like, you know, it's really sad and dark. I was like, is it? And then I started listening <laughs> to the words. Like, oh, God, it's about a fucking breakup. It's about this, it's about that. Mm. And so I... I think house music for me is I can work to techno, right? Uh, because I just 
like the beat, you know, the different things and, and the skippier percussion, the garagey percussion in house music is what I like. It's what I'm making. I like the bit as soon as you hear it, you're like, oh, pull that little mm. face, your shoulders start going. And I think for me, it's much more the rhythm that is, you know, and I think before people could sing, you know, I'm again, this is probably, you know, someone from fucking Natural History Museum might be able to, be able to put me in the right direction. But I'm sure we were banging shit, you know, eventually when we discovered fire, sitting around and singing and making instruments and yeah, sound yeah. beat was so important versus the lyrics now we've added the emotion of a lyrics on top of it i think that's the difference and you know it doesn't really matter what they say in a house song you know like cola mm. was essentially talking about mdma mdma but you know, essentially you know she, she takes a taste she can't taste what it is yet you know what i mean like you know just has one sip of a coca-cola i think they, you know what i mean it's like a bit odd is that what that yeah. song's about? I did, I did not realise. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do, do, does does dance music always struggle from the thing? Because I'm aware that people will go and look. Obviously, you're you're not as middle aged as I am. But that's the problem is when we talk about it. I mean, like, can you just corroborate to the listener that the average age for people that still go clubbing has gone up? Because I suppose you know. I don't really understand in a way why the daytime thing took so long to become a thing. But that is that where you see in the biggest area in in growth, you know, in terms of events, stuff happening during the day. Yes, I think events. I mean, defected as as a label. You know, Simon Dunmore again, brilliant guy, been fantastic, helpful to me. Really, you know, a lovely bloke. He, you know, he what defected did with it were events and the things they pioneered. You know, there is a real appetite for people to go out there dance and to party. I think um, on the continent. You know, especially around Spanish, Spain, Italy, um, you know, the culture is to go out, you know, go out to dinner at like fucking 11 o'clock and the party starts at four in the morning. They've always culturally done that. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's why music on with Marco Corolla and, you know, Circa Loco and all those other bits and pieces like DC 10. They love that kind of um, vibe. I think p- people value their sleep. I think lives are a bit more stressful. People are more busy in inverted commas. So day parties are good. I think there is a real appetite for day parties. Um, and I think they're getting bigger and bigger. I think it's down to... You know, the, the, is it just for old fuckers like me that, no, that just just no. want to get to bed? No, well, no, he... I just think I just think it's very interesting. So I'll give you an example with the Ocean Beach thing coming up recently. Is I was thinking about kind of what I want to play, and you know, some people will go to see DJ. So I would go and see Fred again out of it, you know, because I want to see him perform. I think it'd be amazing. I would look at a lineup at a festival. I would go and see the DJs. I want some people go to a party irregardless of who's playing because like an Ocean Beach. For a lot of people, it's the Instagram, it's the party, it's the social. Unless there is a really specific DJ, they're just there to have a tear up. They don't really give a fuck. They're not there to be educated on music. You know, go to a you know go to see Fat Tony at Full Fat Brunch. You know it's classic house and disco. You are going to see Fat Tony. You are going to have a dance, dress up in flowers, and and you know get prosecco'd out your mind. You go to Glitterbox. You know it's classic house and disco. That's what you're looking for. And I think there are probably a, a big seam of events where it's just people on the piss. It's more opportunity to go out and get pissed up than it is to listen to the music. But I think because of streaming and the easy access of so much music, you are now finding more fans, finding certain DJs and getting more access to DJs. And someone like Fisher, who's one of my DJ idols, you know, and I met him, he's a fucking hero. He is a performer. He is a, as a pop star, as much a pop mm. star as a DJ, because he performs. People come to see Fisher because his music's on point, his mix is on point but there's the theatrics that go with it and people will have found that and go and follow him and go and see it. Hence you see him playing at Coachella, you know, hence you see him selling out all these things. And I think um, it's just means now that you've got much more, much more diversion, I think, and people finding more access to music. So you're getting more, more love for it. I think. I mean, with you, with yourself, just one last thing is like, um, 
as as such a like. Have you ever seen anyone as fucking hench as you behind the decks? Basically, um, do they? Do they? I mean, if you did, if you did boiler room, they'd have to clear a bit more space, <laughs> wouldn't they? I mean, it sounds like I'm uh, flirting now, but yeah, it is. It's a mate. You know, we talk. You know, we covered a lot of topics, a lot of penis, yeah. got a lot of love. Um, yeah. Would I? Am I ever sitting? No, I. Oh, I tell you what. So you know Hodor from Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. He he's a DJ, a very very good tech DJ. Um, and he is seven foot something. And I and after one of my first DJ sets, Harper Adams University, I he was on as the main headliner, and I was like, "Fuck me!" He is it's Christian uh, Christian uh, Christian Narn, his name is, and he is yeah. uh, from Northern Ireland, right? Is yeah, it, from is Northern it... Ireland, but lovely guy, Matt. But you know, so he's the biggest dude. He he was so big, it's like lean back on something because he just like kinked in the middle because he's like seven foot one. So, he, <laughs> so he's the only bloke. So far, that and that, or that apart from that tech, famous techno Viking on YouTube that people say that I look like, who does all the fun. You know, you've seen it. YouTube yeah, techno I haven't Viking. I've seen it. No, I reckon. Yeah, after this, get up, look at techno Viking because that's exactly what I look like. Just this aggressive Berlin, huge gear and all, like massive fucking, you know, <laughs> just doing it proper techno German stuff. And someone like upsets him, and he's like, gives him a look. I'm gonna rip your fucking arms off. And then someone gives him a bottle of water, and he just like techno's off. Well, that's it. No, I think I think that's the thing is if they're not dancing, scare them into dancing. So the podcast, obviously, people um, should check that out. The book is, I mean, the book is. It's, it, I really loved reading the book. Uh, remind us of the title of the book. Yeah, so I've got, so I've got uh, there's a series of kind of two out. One called What Flanker, which is what you read. Then I had a follow up mm. to that called Ruck Me, and I've got a book about kind of much more about uh, mental health and performance and kind of some of the stuff we're talking about with council culture and how to navigate that. And that's called um, Approach Without Caution. Okay, we'll check out all of those. And I'd love to, and this is the well, maybe the one and only time I'll be able to do this, is I could hype your DJ dates. Uh, check out. It's going to be at, at Ocean Beach, which, uh, you know, for, for the, the, the those of us who are advancing years and beyond, it's all done and dusted by what, 11 p.m.? Something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so Ocean Beach, a full day party vibe. Um D for Dance is taking them over every Monday in Ibiza. And then I've got my own event at um, a place called Rooftop Nine in San Antonio and Amelia Hotel, or Inside Hotel it's called. And it's called Sunset Sessions. Perfect way. Like I did it, I did the first one on Saturday, seven till 10. Oh, classic house disco building up to a nice bit of house. Everyone gets a few sherbets down them and then they, they nip off for a night out and I go to bed. It's the perfect crime. Beautiful. Well, James Haskell, thanks so much for being on what most people think. Cheers, Jeff. Thanks, pal. Okay, that was the chat with James. I hope you enjoyed that. And please you know, indulge me with the DJ chat. It's not often that I get to talk to somebody in the industry. And if you were just thinking these sad old twats still thinking they're cool, well, you're a sad old twat. What are you into, eh? Fucking with your train set. I bet you got some sad old butt. Well, you're still fishing, are you? Well, you're a fucking subsistence farmer. We've all got sad, weird stuff. Okay, uh, there's been a few reviews. Thanks very much for those. I'll read a few of those out now. This is from C. Devin. Um, All right, let's pick an accent for this. Let's just do one of those. You know one of those women that you speak with that speaks like that? Very officious. Hello. When the week has been tough, I can always rely on Jeff to make me laugh. Uh, Whenever his podcast drops, I listen to it, driving to and from work, and it always boosts my mood. Thanks, Jeff. That was basically, if you want to know what that accent was, it's called Auntie. Um, this is from Dom Haslam. Dom, it's got to be a middle-class guy. Jeff is to, is to the sanctimonious woke what Harold Larwood was to the cricket team, the Australian cricket team in 1932. 
I say, bold, well bold, Harold, to Norcott, just as J- Douglas Jardine did to Larwood, as another Aussie batsman lay riding in agony on the floor. I like the way it went angry there. And I appreciate an extended cricket metaphor there. Uh, this is So, Jeff, this is referred to last week's episode, where I may have perved out a bit on Penny Morden, perhaps. Um, Jeff, bang on the money about the delectable Penny M. He has a firm grip of a... T- oh, Jesus. Um, not so accurate about being at junction 10 of the M60. It was definitely the M65 between Blackburn and Burnley. Ah, right, yeah, I did wonder about that. The M60 is the Mancunian orbital motorway. I mean, in many ways, that is what most people think kind of prime um, correspondence there is a bloke pulling me up in terms of, of, of stuff about motorways. Um, this is from Disco Shoe. Hey, love the show. And Jeff's work as you stand up never takes the easy route with guests who share his opinions, and which gives great balance to the show and has changed my viewpoint on some subjects. All I overdid it there. All the while, while I piss myself laughing. I mean, I'm hoping that you know the laughing is the reason for it, but maybe you just piss yourself. Maybe it's just coincidental. Um, this is from the punk. And the Godfather, maybe I have to do a sort of Billy Bragg type voice. I've listened to this podcast from the start, and it remains my favourite podcast. Funny, informative, interesting guests with varied viewpoints, and not too serious, highly recommended. Um, Okay, and this is from Jim Bean, who's given me a five-star review, but uh, had something to say about a recent guest who apparently was uh, doing anti-English views on her own podcast. Well, you know, we all say mad shit on podcasts, but um, I'm glad. I'm glad that you. Uh, I'm glad that you gave me a five star review. I mean, I'm just such a, a desperate little bitch here. But thank you very much uh, for listening to what most people think. And next week, next week is episode two hundred. I've got a very special guest there, so do look out for that. Thank you for uh, all the new reviews. Give James Haskell a follow, you know, give him some love because, you know, the more the more really famous people come on here and find out they get a bit of love back, they talk to all the other famous things. Who knows? Who knows? I could be I could be interviewing. Who, who could I be interviewing? Give it a few years. I could be interviewing Tom Hanks. You know what I say that? I heard him on a podcast the other week. He was fucking boring. Anyway, speak to you last week. Next week. Oh,